Well, Welcome to Lab Life with the Air Force Research Laboratory. Hi, I'm Michelle. And I'm Kenneth. Hello, folks. Today we are joined by Dr. Emily Heckman to discuss printed electronics, astrophysics, and the power of theater. In three, two, one. Dr. Heckman, welcome to the podcast. Great. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Yeah, we're glad to have you. And, and really, this is just an audition for us to see if you could do future voiceover work. Oh, okay. Well, I, I'll get my singing voice warmed up then for you. Yeah, because yeah, one of the fun things we found about you is that, you know, growing up, you originally thought you would, you know, take a turn on Broadway. You were a big fan of theater. You were pursuing that. Yeah, I I didn't expect, uh, you know, if you would have asked high school me, would I be a scientist? High school me would have laughed at you. So, you know, all through high school and even into college, I wanted to pursue theater and I joined, I didn't do any honors science classes. I didn't do any science fair because that would have taken away from being in shows and, you know, rehearsal schedules were always intense. And I thought, you know, I even applied to school um, for a college to be a theater major. And then I think I, I had a little bit of a reality check thinking, you know, whoa, can I really do this professionally? And so I always loved math, even though I wasn't in like the highest track for science. I was always in the highest track for math. I just loved it so much. So I had a very strong math background. And so, you know, when I was looking around at, well, what else could I do as my theater backup plan? I thought, well, hey, physics has a lot of math in it. So, you know, everyone goes from theater to physics, right? <laughs> I also fell in love with the space program as well. I've always loved that idea. And so I wanted to be an astronaut. I thought, well, you know, if I can't be on Broadway, I'm going to do, I'm going to be an astronaut. That seemed like a logical jump for me. I thought, well, astrophysics sounds like something you would study if you were an astronaut. And so you have to, to be an astrophysicist, you have to start with physics. And so I double majored my freshman year in college in physics and theater. And then eventually I just kind of came to the conclusion that maybe physics and science was the better way forward for me. And uh, so then I just kind of zoomed in on that path. So yeah, but I still love uh, theater and I do choir when I, you know, before COVID, I would do some choir and some singing. And but I got to tell you, honestly, one of the best skills you need to be in science is a theater background. Uh, to, to, you know, the shows you have to perform to get your funding, that comes in really handy when you have to get up and do a song and dance for different, you know, people who control the purse string. So I still get a lot of use out of those skills. That was something I was going to ask about because um, I, I took a th I was in a theater background myself, quite a few musicals and a few um, acting bits back in high school, especially. And I found that really helped me with confidence on stage, presenting in front of people and really just having fun. So I'd love to know before we go ahead, um, is there a musical that really sticks out to you? One that when you performed and you loved, um, for example, mine, Little Shop of Horrors, I think is still the one that I had the most fun being part of. Well, okay. So in terms of being a part of, I had the lead in 42nd Street in high school, and that was certainly a lot of fun because I also got to tap dance and sing. Um, but in terms of my love, so one of my ways I've made my mark in the censors directorate is I 
did perhaps sing a parody to Evita to our chief scientist during a large gathering. So a lot of people now around sensors, the cat is out of the bag that I, I sing because I wanted to do exactly that. I wanted to bring some fun to an event I was organizing. And so I love Andrew Lloyd Webber and Evita is one of my favorites. So I did a parody to Don't Cry For Me Argentina, but I think it was something like, please don't leave this talk early or something like that. <laughs> I, I love that. So I understand if this isn't recorded anywhere, we at least know now that it happened. But I think that's such a cool and fun way to make, like you said, either a talk or presentation or even engage people is the magic of theater is something everyone can smile or at least you know, bob their head or have fun to. Uh, so the fact you can still continue doing that in your career and still see that impacting it. I mean, how neat is that? They, they talk about theater being a magical place and it sounds like the magic never left. Right. Well, and I think, you know, science is fun, too. And I think sometimes we take ourselves too seriously. And so I love to bring a little levity, whether it's to group meetings or, you know, professional meetings. I think it's fun to find the joy in life. And that's an easy way to do it. So speaking of that connection, then, of how kind of the theater and you were working there back in college, uh, even back in high school, and kind of that transition to more of the harder sciences, were there any notable internships that you had um, on your academic journey that really helped prepare you for where you are today? Okay, well, this is a complicated question because they did, but probably not in the way that you were going to expect me to say. So I told you I was really interested in astrophysics because I wanted to be a scientist. And so I pursued this. There's a fantastic program that NSF offers. And so I certainly want to plug this if any undergraduates might be listening, probably not. But if they don't know it, it's the research experience for undergraduates. And so the NSF has all of these different sites around many, many universities where undergraduate students can dive into a certain field and really try it out in the summer. And so I pursued um, internships in astrophysics because that's what I thought I wanted to do. I had one at the University of Chicago, and then I also did one at the Harvard Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics. And they were they were really interesting. So a fun thing when I was in Chicago, I have the, uh, I'm able to say that I discovered a galaxy. So that's fun. But unfortunately, it's not named after me or anything because it was done in kind of the most underwhelming way. And that was sorting through quasar data. So quasars are these giant flashlights at the edges of our universe. And they, act, well, I say a flashlight, they act like a flashlight because the energy radiating from them goes through all of this stuff and basically whatever is in its path between us and the quasar is illuminated like a flashlight and you can look at the chemical signatures of that data and that's how we discovered a galaxy was by examining quasar data we found chemical signatures which only could come from a galaxy and that part the end part was really cool but what i discovered with these internships was that astrophysics was a lot of sitting down behind a desk and analyzing data it's a lot of computer programming and that was not what I envisioned. Maybe I was thinking, you know, Jodie Foster and contact or something. But what those internships did was help me fine tune what I wanted to do. And that led me to optics and physics, because I really enjoyed the hands on aspect of physics and science. And I wanted something where I could get my hands in there and make things work and move things and program equipment so that it operates and does different stuff. And so those internships didn't excite me about astrophysics, but they excited me about a different part of physics and helped me realize, well, hey, that's not really what I wanted to do, but this is. And so uh, those two were notable, but for, you know, maybe the different reason. That's why I think it's so important to try out and, and to be able to 
test drive certain professions before you make that commitment into grad school and study them for seven years. Yeah, certainly. And I think you got the the fun fact out of that journey, too, that you discovered a galaxy. I don't really know anyone else that's done that. So that's super <laughs> cool. Well, and then there was also a very cool thing at the Harvard internship where we were testing a piece of equipment. And that actually did get launched later on a, on a mission. But of course, that was part of a team of about 30 different people, very interactive type thing. But that was a lot of fun as well. Um, but it was, but it also helped me see like, okay, that's the part that I want to be involved in. I want to have my hands involved in testing stuff. Well, that sounds like starting with a phenomenal, you know, opportunity through the National Science Foundation. That that's really cool. And then, how did you end up transitioning to AFRL and ultimately working on our sensors team? Really, the AFRL part is comes down to maybe a little bit of work life balance, and that that's the two body problem. Um, I went to graduate school at the University of Michigan to study applied physics, and that started in two thousand and one. And I had been dating my now husband pretty seriously in college and we were engaged and he had accepted a job in Dayton. And there was a bit of a notable event that happened in September, 2001, September 11th specifically. And I found myself realizing, you know, this isn't gonna be okay for me. You know, I think for a lot of people, September 11th really focused priorities for people. And I realized my husband, my family, that's very important. And we were going to try to do this, you know, commuting for seven, five to seven years, however long it took me to finish my PhD. And that kind of focused things for me that I needed to reevaluate. So what I did was I stayed at Michigan long enough to get a master's in physics, just to have that under my belt. And then I transferred to the University of Dayton. They have a very strong program in electro-optics. And what drew me to that program in part was knowing I could do my research at AFRL and do my research on base. And even though perhaps UD couldn't compete to the lab facilities at the University of Michigan, which is a you know top tier research school, the base certainly can and AFRL certainly can. And so that was really my window into getting into the high quality of research that goes on in AFRL. So I've been affiliated with AFRL then since 2002 when I transferred to UD and started my PhD work, had just some great government support and advisors. So I did my dissertation work exclusively at Wright-Pat on base. And so then afterwards, I was able to get a job as a contractor and then a position in the sensors directorate opened up, which was well suited for my background. And so I've been in the sensors directorate now since 2009. So now on the AFRL team, what's some of the, the cool work that you're doing? Um, well, at AFRL and at the Sensors Directorate, I run a printed electronics uh, laboratory. And we are one of the only comprehensive printed electronics facilities within AFRL in terms of all of our capabilities being under one roof. So let me paint a picture for you and, and just kind of tell you maybe what printed electronics means. And then I can also give you a visual of what you'd see if you walked into my very cluttered laboratory, but really cool as well. I wish we could show you some photos of that. So I think a lot of people are probably familiar with the term additive manufacturing and 3D printing. And what we do is 
very closely related to that. But, you know, when I think of the 3D printing and probably when a lot of people think of that, you might think of the chess piece, the horse head being printed from the bottom up. And that's a very similar technology as to what we're using, but we are printing with slightly different materials. We print with gold and with silver and different metals and some very highly novel materials like graphene and 2D materials and then also some polymer type materials. We also print them in a much more finer capacity. We can print down to a 10 micron line width, which just to give you an idea, a human hair is about 100 microns in diameter. And so we're printing to a 10th of the size of a human hair. And, and if you walked into my lab and you're looking around at what our equipment looks like, some of our, we have uh, several different types of printers and several different types of technologies. And it's a way of taking these materials in a liquid form and taking them and, and depositing them in, into a circuit type of design. We use inkjet printing and if you have an inkjet printer at home, it doesn't look too dissimilar from what our inkjet printer looks like. And ours is maybe a little bit bigger and also then it's probably a slight difference in the what we're printing with. As I mentioned, you know, we're printing with silver and gold and precious metals and so that is a little different. The other technology we use is something called aerosol jet printing. And this piece of equipment looks like two washing machines, perhaps stacked on top of each other in terms of its size. And it's not too different from an aerosol can of hairspray, however. What we do with this technology is it takes an ink with a precious metal mixed in with it and we aerosolize it by adding some gas to it. And then we do it in such a way that it can be deposited very precisely. And so I mentioned we can do 10 micron line widths. We can also control the thickness as well. And so why we are looking at this technology, you know, what is printed electronics? Um, well, if you're not too familiar with perhaps how regular electronics are made or, you know, conventional electronics, a lot of conventional electronics use a subtractive technique called photolithography. And this is where you have a metal of interest, you know, maybe it's your copper or you, perhaps it's your semiconductor material and it's deposited everywhere on the wafer, but then you remove the parts that you don't want. We are an additive technology to, you know, make the, the difference between subtractive and additive, where we're only putting our material of interest exactly where we need it. So there's a lot less waste if we're printed electronics, for one thing. When you're trying to keep the cost down or perhaps just be a responsible uh, person not having so much waste in your electronic production. That's certainly a big piece of it. But the other really important part of additive manufacturing and printed electronics, well, there's, there's two, I would say, really interesting pieces to this. One is that we can deposit now and print materials that you can't do with the conventional methods. So conventional electronics, they rely on a lot of harsh chemical processing techniques and a lot of chemical baths. And if you're working with a very new fragile material, the 2D materials come to mind. They cannot withstand those types of processes easily. And so sometimes we want to explore new materials to get new capabilities. And these new materials might have some really fascinating and interesting properties to help propel our technology forward. But if we don't have a way to work with them, they're not gonna be very useful. So additive manufacturing, this can provide a way to work with some of these new materials and, and really explore new frontiers in science. And the other important piece is that we have, we're able to do rapid prototyping.
um, we can do all of the manufacturing of a circuit from start to finish, from the design to the, the inception to making the final product, all right within my little laboratory, which is probably as big as someone's living room. You know, we can just walk in a complete circle and do all this. Whereas conventionally, most electronics, there's a lot of different parts and there's a lot of different people involved in that supply chain. And so and especially if we're working on maybe a new technology where we're not exactly sure of the design, we can print something and at the end of the literal day, like maybe, you know, four hours later, as opposed to a couple weeks later, we can test it and say, oops, this isn't working how we hoped. But all we have to do is walk across the lab, play with our computer design and reprint it, try again, either with a new material, a new design. Whereas conventionally, that process might take weeks to months if you had to make a new design, get a new mask sent out, and there's a lot of different players involved. I don't know if I've been going too much about the merits of printed electronics. The one last thing I really wanna plug though is the part about security for our electronics. And that is, because of all of the people involved in making, for example, your iPhone or computer, a lot of that is done overseas. And, you know, there's a lot of different board houses and the manufacturing. And the more people involved in touching your technology opens a greater risk to that technology being compromised. And this is not just a problem for the Air Force, although it certainly becomes maybe a life and death problem when you're talking about technology going into Department of Defense systems. But it, it also is a huge security risk for, you know, just consumers and getting all, you know, our lives are now um, for a lot of us on our iPhones. And if that becomes compromised through a hardware issue, that can really be a problem. So maybe in the future, additive technologies and printed electronics will give us the ability to do more onshore, you know, um, manufacturing just within the United States. And I was thinking there's some like really significant, you, you mentioned like the security concerns and, but I think the everyday American right now is being influenced by the uh, chip shortage that we have. And I, I would imagine that, you know, could, could 3D printing, is that another way to, to, to develop these chips that we hear about that aren't available in our, in our cars or electronics uh, as, as we go through like a global sh shortage? Well, we can work with these new materials and really explore new materials. So, you know, this isn't a technology that we can get to people tomorrow, but the work in my group in particular and a lot of AFRL, you know, we're really looking toward the future, but we, this technology does allow us to look at possible alternatives to some of our current chips. And yeah, that the chip shortage is a very big concern. There's other materials out there though that are also being threatened. There's lithium, which is you know a huge component to batteries. And so there's a lot of work in printed electronics on printed energy sources and looking into new materials. And Again, the reason why we're looking using printed electronics is some of these new materials we want to explore aren't compatible with some of the conventional CMOS type processing. So hopefully, maybe in the future, we can help address some of those issues. So something that I, I kind of wanted to make sure our viewers were able to uh, clear in their heads as well. Um, so you've talked about both the these 2D electronics or these 2D spaces versus 3D. Um, what does that kind of mean, the space of where you're working? Because I'm trying to think of 2D electronics, I think like a sheet of paper or even like a wafer. Is that kind of where you're going for or is it something different? 
Okay, well, yeah, let me give you a little example. So let me elaborate, I guess, on the difference between 2D and 3D. We certainly work in three dimensions, but the 2D printing for electronics, you know, we're printing some of the electronic components that we print are just lines. And so we aren't working to build up thickness in many cases. However, we do also have access through our partners and sensor structure and our, we ourselves have many 3D printers as well. I don't want to mislead you. We aren't solely focused on 2D. We also do 3D printing. And there's a very good reason for that. And that is one of the benefits of the 2D printed electronics is that we can print on surface areas that conventional electronics can't get to. Our electronics work great. You know, your iPhone is pretty much a miracle in your hand, but it's flat and it's hard and it's rigid. And we're starting to get into a little bit of the technology with the OLEDs and the rollable type devices. But really, conventional electronic fabrication is often confined to rigid substrates. And so one of the benefits that additive manufacturing offers for electronics is we can print on curved surfaces, flexible surfaces. And so this opens up a whole design world for electronics that we hadn't considered. So one of the projects that we've done is there's a UAV and our partners in the sensors directorate, they printed the entire nose cone of this UAV. So, you know, the UAV, you know, had a big metal nose on it. They 3D printed the entire thing. And then we took a little chunk of that, that's maybe six inches uh, by six inches, a little, a little chunk, um, that was completely, you know, designed to go on the side of this. It was a piece of the nose cone, so it was curved. Our partners are like, you know, what would be really cool is if we could put an antenna on the side of the UAV and not have to take up space on the inside or sticking up. And why would we want to do that? Well, extra things, extra space is extra weight. And so we're always trying to drive down what we often refer to is as C-SWAP. I don't know how how much of a term that is used, but it stands for cost, weight, size, and power, or cost, size, weight, and power for you. It depends on how you pronounce it. So we are always looking for the Air Force to try to drive that down because whether it is a technology that is on one of our airmen, the amount of weight that they carry already is astronomical. So if we can make some technology that lightens their load physically, or if we can lighten the load on a UAV, that gives us a greater range. We can you know, go farther and, and do more with the UAV. So this particular project was looking at making an antenna to fit seamlessly on the side of UAV on the skin that it already needed on its you know, outside skin. So it wouldn't be taking up any extra real estate. We couldn't do it with conventional electronics though because it was curved. And so we were able to print on this curved surface an antenna and not only was it an antenna, but it was an active array. It was able to steer a beam and take up a lot less real estate and a lot less size weight, you know, really reduce the footprint that that antenna would have taken up otherwise. And the other thing I, I'd like to mention with that is that we didn't print the chips that were driving that. Um, a lot of what we're doing right now, as I mentioned, electronics, conventional electronics is pretty phenomenal. And right now, printed electronics can't compete with those active chips, the, the, the brains of an electronic device. So we have a saying in, in the flexible electronics world, and that is, 
print what you can, but place what you can't. We are not trying to make everything printed just because it's cool and it's all printed. If there's a tiny little chip, you know, and, and our chips that we're talking about are millimeters in size. And so we can often embed those on a curved surface or even a flexible surface without losing any of our performance. We will certainly take advantage of that because at the end of the day, what we are looking to do is just make something that works better perhaps, or at least as well, but maybe does it more cheaply, we can do it more quickly and with taking up less of a footprint. And what's interesting is you've uh, illustrated a really good point about how these flexible electronics can actually work in the nose of a drone or even talking about, I mean, I was looking up, you know, the uh, the Samsung foldable phones, the fact that we're starting to see some evolution in this technology that we don't have to stick to just rigid structures when printing at least. Uh, pun intended, it bends my mind. So I'm just trying, I'm trying to like get my head around it too. I know you've tested a lot of great materials. Your team makes sure to vet all of this, but I, I just imagine having something bend, let's say with the foldable phones as much as they would, I imagine it have to degrade pretty quick. So I'm wondering how, how do you keep it so strong then if it isn't rigid? Like these actually bend around these surfaces. Like it's, I'm trying to imagine the materials to get that done. Cause you mentioned using gold and other uh, metals to test, but is there something, is some kind of mixture you use or technique that really makes sure it keeps its strength to help with what you mentioned, that cost, size, weight, and power kind of equation? Well, that really drives the heart of some of our group's research is we do have to do a lot of vetting of materials. And so some of the applications, sometimes we use a coating to go over it, but there's always a limit as to how much something can bend. There's, you know, so that is part of our research. And Another area that we're looking into are materials for space. And that's because, again, if we can print them, we might be able to print them much more thinner. And, and, and if you talk about an area where weight is important and payload is important, space is it. If we can send an antenna up that is you know, a tenth of the weight of a current antenna, then you can fit 10 times more in, in that payload. And space real estate is very, very pricey. So we've been working a lot and looking at materials, and this was this has been in collaboration with our space vehicles directorate and trying to to look at that. And so to really make sure if we're looking at a material, we've actually sent materials to the International Space Station to be tested. And there's a fantastic research program called MISI, and it's it stands for Materials International Space Station Experiment. And a private company, Alpha Space, will buy real estate on the MISI. And so these samples go up and they sit on the International Space Station for six months or 12 months. And so we've been able to design an experiment, look at materials that we think, you know, we've done a lot of vetting of these materials on earth, but the real proof in the pudding, so to speak, is are they gonna survive in space? And there's a lot of impact considerations. There's considerations, they undergo a lot of vibration just getting to space. And so in my lab, we have a, a couple just square inches. Uh, real estate's very expensive, as I mentioned. We were able to fit a lot onto those square inches and we tested them on the RAM and the wake side of the International Space Station to see how these materials were affected by atomic oxygen in particular. And we tested shielding materials as well because we were pretty sure we, we can't leave them, you know, unshielded. And so, uh, so that is a, a very big part of our research because, and that's a 
very big concern for a lot of people with their with conventional technologies. We we have a lot of data on what works and what works well, and and instigating change is difficult. And so we really have to jump through a lot of hoops to try to convince people, hey, you can put this on your UAV. You know, no, what you don't want to take a risk uh, with a, a new part. So that's a very large part of not just my work personally, but the community's work uh, as a whole is trying to vet our materials and look into those very issues. And I know something uh, that so going through all the vetting process, working on these awesome new materials and really building trust in a lot of this is something we wanted to talk about because you brought up earlier about um, the more hands that can touch these products or more hands that touch a lot of these you know iPhones whatever we're building now uh, there's a chance that something could leak or something could go awry uh, and so building the lab you obviously have more control but people outside of this community may not fully understand that so how is your team helping build or really spearheading a lot of the uh, DoD's like really boost, boosting in trust of microelectronics for people who may not maybe kind of uh, antsy about it, if you will. I have to imagine there's something putting forward to be like, hey, you can trust this for these reasons. So we're interested to see how that's being done. Well, that is an avenue that we're trying to look into. Um, it's not necessarily the primary focus of our group, but you know, as I said, we can do all of the manufacturing in our trusted facility. And so that in particular is, is a big confidence booster. The other aspect to that is that because additive manufacturing and printed electronics can be done at the end of a production, we have the ability to take perhaps parts that we know are trusted and maybe add a little bit of a, you know, security feature on the end tail of that. So now we haven't done a lot of work in that area, but it's something that we've been keeping tabs on and have been exploring to a smaller extent, um, working with some of that because the Air Force in particular has a very strong interest in keeping our electronics protected and, and trusted. Yeah, and that, I think that was an important aspect to hit on because I know when you'd mentioned it earlier in our conversation and now that trust can have an issue surrounding any level of the electronics or any device's life. So to hear that that's something your team's beginning to pivot and even working closer with the DOD, um, I think is not only important for our viewers to hear, uh, but people curious about the microelectronics or even the uh, bendable or, excuse me, more of like these foldable and flexible electronics world. So there are uh, people out there making it more secure and your team is part of that puzzle. Just, yeah, a small piece, but we're, we're trying. <laughs> and something we wanted to tie a lot of this together then with this awesome conversation about uh, science with theater, space, and all of that is really people being able to join the space you're working in. Um, specifically, we're interested, if you had advice for uh, young women looking to join into this world of STEM, whether that be space, foldable electronics, whatever it is, um, especially if they're uncertain about joining the DOD. A lot of people don't know what opportunities lie within the government or even within the Air Force. So what advice would you have for these young women who may just be joining or getting into high school or joining into college programs? Oh goodness. Like we could do a whole podcast on that question. Um, <laughs> I have a, I have a, I have a few thoughts on this area. Um, well, okay. Well, let me start just personally. I have four children and they are ages 14 to three. Uh, I have a very busy research life as well. And I think I, I like to tell people, and, and some people may not realize within the DOD, is there are many opportunities now to balance work and life a little easier. And some of those, and I've taken advantage of these personally, are job sharing, 
working part-time and teleworking. And so I have actually worked part-time ever since the birth of my first child, um, part-time being 80%, but still it gives me that flexibility to break away and pick up kids from school and, and still, you know, be an active mom, but then also still be able to have a career that I can be proud of and feel like I'm making a contribution to. And the other aspect of that in, in terms of what advice would I give, and that is I really tried to plug this NSF REU program. There are a lot of internship programs like that out there. And I would encourage people, not just girls, but boys too, to take advantage and look around. Right, Patterson in particular, if you're in the Dayton area, offers many excellent summer internships. And I always have had summer students in my lab that is a very big part of my personal commitment is I like to, I've, I feel like our lab in particular can be a teaching lab. And we always have summer students and graduate students. I think we've had high school students. We tend to do undergraduates and graduate students. But I think, you know, taking advantage of the opportunities to learn what you like, or, you know, in my case, what you might not like. And, you know, I would say don't be afraid to fail and don't be afraid to try new things. If I hadn't been afraid to jump from theater to physics, I wouldn't be where I am. And you have to be realistic about that. You still have to be able to take the math and that sort of thing. But there's also a lot of failure in life. And I, I think, you know, I will go ahead and out myself that, you know, I, if you would look up my physics GRE score to get into graduate school, it was abysmal. I actually failed that test. 100% um, completely failed the physics GRE, yet I still got into a top physics school, the University of Michigan, and I was an NSF fellowship recipient. But the reason I was able to do that, even though I have miserably failed some tests in my life, is because of the commitment that I've had to research and still just kind of dusting yourself off and trying again. Um, I know there's a particular memorable time I also had in one of my graduate physics classes where I think I got an F on one of the tests and I'd never gotten an F before in my life. But what it encouraged me to do was work harder. And I went to the teacher and I asked questions and I figured out what I did wrong and I studied very, very hard for the rest of the class and pulled out an A at the end of the, the day. So I think you have to know that failure is going to come and we've all done it. You know, you look at the people around you and you think, oh, I'm sure they're just, you know, they never had an issue in their life. But I think we all have failures in, in our past and you have to own it and learn from it. And the other really important piece is to never stop learning. You know, I, I also I do try to do a lot of outreach for high school and and different things. I, I've been a speaker for Air Camp, and I, I really do try to reach out to the student world because I, I think it's, I really want to encourage people to, to join this area. And one of the things I like to point out is, you know, I am now in the printed electronics world, and I'm fairly well respected in my community. And I do, you know, I give a lot of talks and everything. And I like to point out, you know, how many classes I took in printed electronics as a student, and that would be zero. You know, this field didn't exist when I was in school. And that's a very important lesson that I think people need to learn about science and engineering is it's always changing. And you have to be willing to always to jump in and learn new things. So, you know, you think, 
oh, well, you got your PhD, you've been in your job for so many years and you, you're settled and you're just going to do that for the rest of your life. And that's not the case. You have to always be willing to change and adapt and learn new things and admit that you don't know them. You know, I, I went and took classes to learn about some of this technology and I'm you know, I, I want to dive in and, and learn about new things. And if you don't do that, you're going to let some really exciting opportunities pass you by. I just want to thank you for being so candid about your experience and, you know, that failure doesn't determine the rest of your life. I mean, you know, someone could have given up after that GRE score and then maybe you never would have discovered a galaxy or sent something to the International Space Station or explored a, a field that you've never had a class in either and 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 be a leader in that area. So thanks for joining us today, Emily. I really enjoyed this conversation and, and we'll be reaching out to you. I think you passed your audition about doing some voiceover work from the top of the show, but. Oh, great. So. I needed a, I need a backup career. So thank you. <laughs> Make sure to follow us on social media at Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, and YouTube at AF Research Lab. And remember, stay curious. Logging off.